it's bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Arazu. And this is um, an extra pod for y'all because honestly, there was too much, there was just too much this week. And there are a couple of stories that we found very relevant, but couldn't fit into the regular pod. So you're going to get a little bit more and you're welcome. So <laughs> let's start off because why do the fellatio? Okay. Um, liberals continue to bullshit women. Well, shocking. I know you were shocked, Arzu. Never. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Member of Parliament, Mar- Marwan Tabara, who had a court hearing on assault and criminal charges was approved to run for the Liberals in 2019 federal election despite a party investigation into allegations of sexual harassment made against him during his last mandate. The Liberals looked into detailed allegations of misconduct made against the Kitchener South Hespeller MP that included inappropriate touching and unwelcome sexual comments directed at a female staffer, according to sources with knowledge of the allegations. The allegations date back to the 2015 election campaign. Tabara, the past chair of the Commons Committee on International Human Rights, stepped away from the Liberal caucus two weeks ago, but is still working as an MP. The Prime Minister's Office, or PMO as it's known in Ottawa, said it only learned about the charges last Friday morning and they were, quote, looking into the matter. Hmm. So despite uh, PM Trudeau's zero tolerance policy on sexual misconduct in the workplace, the party approved Tabara as a liberal candidate last year. So here's my thing. Number one, he was approved to run for last year's federal election. Yeah. But the party had investigated the allegations of sexual harassment made against him during the last mandate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So between 2015 and 2019, the liberals became aware because they investigated the allegations is what I'm getting. Okay, Um, but they approved him anyway. So what about the zero tolerance business? Where what? Well, I guess after blackface, anything's possible. I know. I'm like, if if they were to draw a line, they might have drawn it then. But again, as someone who works with survivors of sexual violence on a daily basis, uh, of survivors of sexual violence 
uh, in politics specifically on a daily basis, I'm not very surprised, right? Because whether it be formal allegations or form- formal reports that are investigated or just knowledge that the, you know, the party has or other elected officials or other candidates have, this is an ongoing issue that impacts so many staffers and so many folks across the political spectrum that unfortunately, I, I, I these like these news pieces don't surprise me anymore right and so it's really interesting that this happened uh, in the 2015 election campaign because YWLN's research found out that 28% of the sexual violence experienced by young women uh, with a median age of 25 um, happened at campaign offices and 18% of that was while they were canvassing. So we know that it's very likely that... Um, Young women who are working on election campaigns, who are volunteering for election campaigns, are going to explain some form of um, sexual violence. And we know that, again, 5% of those perpetrators in our research were elected officials, 7% of them were candidates. And um, again, with everything that's going on with our research, with the Me Too movement, with the very public cases of folks like uh, Patrick Brown, who unfortunately was not canceled. Um, again, Canadian politics, there was an uproar that was all of these promises. There was this zero tolerance policy that the liberals continue to say they have. But again, we see people like this continuously forgiven and allowed into civic spaces where they can have a real impact on the careers and the futures of young women who enter these spaces and who are trying to um achieve this gender equality that the government seems to be very invested in well i i think there's something to be said especially about the culture of and the power differential between the staffer and an mp and i know Mm -hmm. that you see this is where you have way more experience in this than me being in that in that zone because like yeah yeah So, like, tell us a little bit about that, because I'm curious. So, for example, um, I'm assuming that young women especially work long hours in close quarters with staffers. I know there was a a sort of uproar about alcohol at, at parties and so on and so forth. But, again, that just... Um serves and to um what's the word i'm looking for uh 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 uh, separate it's an excuse right Yeah. yeah like to separate um the occurrence of sexual violence against staffers as an exception so we don't really have to do anything and we don't have to listen to that it's a part of the job description right it's a part of the job description it's you know it's it's a rite of passage yeah <laughs> for for young women in politics and again we know that gender-based sexual violence in politics it's a result of normalized misogyny and rape culture within our political institutions and by you know allowing him to run despite the again as the media report says detailed allegations of sexual harassment by a former staffer the government the liberal party is normalizing gender-based violence against staffers against people who you know who are at the bottom of the hierarchy 
and contributes to this um, uh, to ongoing sexual violence in politics that permits abuse of power within our political institutions. Um, so again, I am not surprised, but again, we have conversations. We, we've had research that really a lot of young women do actually say that it's a rite of passage. It's part of the job description that, you know, we were just supposed to deal with it. We were told to not rock the boat. And specifically during election periods, we were told that, hey, it's an election period. We'll talk about it later. Or, hey, we, we need to win this writing. So, like, don't say anything for now. So, again, we continue to see, like, black women, uh, uh, black and indigenous and racialized women's lives, young women's lives and careers and aspirations being treated as something that is expandable and something that, and violence against them as something that is permissible when we create narratives like this and when we allow people like this to um, ex- access positions of power where they can they get to make decisions about all of our lives um um so again it's it's not surprising and it's very common and um despite um all of these uh again i know until if until i think last year or a year before volunteers weren't even considered um under the house of commons um policies when it came to addressing sexual violence or um, reporting harassment so even that um, you know, power dynamic. Well, you know, the gaps were even wider. The position of the volunteers was even more precarious and there was really no responsibility around that. But even with these new policies, there were actually studies done. Um, I don't have the numbers on me, but it said that still there are a lot of staffers that despite these new policies that give them protections, that they will not come forward, right? Because it's not just about the job. It's not about the policies. It's not about the accountability. It's about that survivor who comes forward being gaslighted and being socially and politically isolated within our civic institutions. Well, and not we even that social, just, yeah, not like just isolated, capital, but blackballed. They will yeah, blackball like you. Social capital is such a huge currency in our political systems. Like who you know, who accepts you, which clique you are a part of, um, which candidate you support, what kind of place are you going to have in the party's future that all plays a role into whether or not um you're encouraged or protected when you come forward agreed and you know it's just more of the same like how many times are we going to go through this like I, i i i just yeah i just i like there's nobody. That's the sad yeah. thing. There's nobody. Yeah. I mean, you know, Singh hasn't been particularly great on, you know, sexual violence issues. No. I mean, uh, no parties are. I mean, no, I wouldn't. Exactly. I mean, sometimes even the 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 more no, progressive I, the going, party, the worse their reaction is going to be at some, you know, in yeah, some cases. Yeah. Yeah, because they, they use some that parties, progressive they, label. Like, we don't even know trending. We don't mm. even know training. We're already feminists, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a zero poli- tolerance policy. If you come forward, it's going to be dealt with. Well, no, right? Mm-hmm. And again, it's, uh, it's just the prioritization of politics and public relations over... Um, 
again, creating systems that actually support survivors and encourage young women to to exist within these spaces, to continue to exist in these spaces, that's really um, the problem, right? Because we talk about how do we get women... I remember I was testifying before the House of Commons Committee on the Status of Women um, last year, uh, and the topic we were discussing was getting more women engaged in politics. And they... Con- you know, the question they were asking was, how do we get women into politics? How do we encourage women to run for office? And as someone, again, I want to be very clear, like I was a 15 year old, a 16 year old girl. I was, I, I, I had come to Canada when I was 14. I was an immigrant. English wasn't my first language. I got involved in a political party and all of these hurdles that you see named in reports around white women don't get involved in politics. I overcame them. And I know so many other people like you, like the people that we know, who will overcome those hurdles, although we shouldn't have to, and they shouldn't be there in the first place. And we do enter politics, but, but the we question don't, we, we should don't be overcome asking, them unscathed. But, and we don't. But here's the thing. The question we should be asking is, why don't women stay in politics? Well, yeah, right? that because is we, the question. You know, the political engagement is there. It's the retainment. It's our civic institution's ability to fully embrace us and address the specific experience that we have in these spaces, right? We had Selena Cesar Chavon and anti-blackness and violence. We had young women like me and so many other people that we know who are still on the hill who are literally questioning whether or not they do belong in these spaces because gender-based violence sexual violence continue to impact them in in such terrible ways in fact research by young women's leadership network shows that 80 percent of the folks that experience sexual violence in politics have either left or decreased their involvement with our civic institutions and this is a political nightmare our democracy to me has no legitimacy when all of these folks who are so eager who get involved in our political institutions in so many different ways are treated as expandable and as dismissible by by, by leaders and by political parties who are truly not committed to including our voices and Again, I'm just furious as I'm talking about it. And and rightly so. I mean, when yeah. I saw this, I was just like, really? I'm just tired. Yeah. You know, I'm tired. I can only imagine what, you know, victims of sexual violence feel, which is a lot of yeah. women. Because right? we, we talk a lot about it because the sexual violence itself, that's a form of trauma that a lot of people have. Yeah. And of course, it, 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 you know, you experience it and it in most cases stays with you forever. But the institutional response to it is where a lot of people can't get over. Right. The mere that like the trust and the um, value that you hold for these institutions are in such violent ways undermined when you come forward and when you're not supported that it really messes up with your worldview and with how willing you are to continue to support these institutions and these leaders when some of the most terrible experiences of your life are treated as if you know it was just a cold right get over it yeah there's a lack of humanity that is just gross it yeah. is gross. 
And institutions are notorious for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, but not to be outdone, the police. <laughs> so apparently the police didn't inform the public about the assault charges. Wow. Because they didn't believe he posed a significant risk to the public. Yeah. What? What kind of harassment doesn't pose a threat? Because if, it, if it's, it's not a harassment, like, is it harassment or not? Because if it's harassment, then it poses a threat. But again, like, the police thresholds for proving assault or harassment are so high that, like, and our criminal code is so vague around it, the language is so broad that, like, it really lives it up to, like, law ens- enforcement to decide, right? Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. And uh, as we've seen, law enforcement is, well, misogynistic. It's just a, it's just a cacophony of misogyny in this country. I'm just, yeah. God. You know, after racism, I, I, or, or dealing with racism and misogyny, you're just like, oh, I'm tired. You know. I know. Anyway. So that was um, that issue. Uh, So we'll see what I know Trudeau's been um, questioned about this and he's like, he's not ready to make a comment or something like that. And I'm just like, that's just not going to fly, buddy. you You better start thinking of something to say. All right, moving on. So this is pride. And, you know, because of, you know, what's going on in the world as ter- in terms of George Floyd protests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we wanted to really talk about some a couple of Supreme Court decisions that are truly monumental. So this is in the United States. In a sweeping three, six to three vote, the top U.S. court ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a federal law prohibiting discrimination in the workplace based on sex, also applied to discrimination against LGBTQ people. The Supreme Court's decision last Monday in Bostock versus Clayton County recognized that federal employment law protections applied to millions of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender workers has rightly been described as a landmark decision. But its immediate effects on the American workplace, while enormous in themselves, pale in comparison with the ruling's broader implication for LGBTQ people and the country as a whole. The decision's logic means that every law prohibiting sex discrimination protects against LGBTQ discrimination as well. So that is systemic, mm-hmm. that decision. So some of, the, some of the, um, the laws that they're talking about would be the Fair Housing Act, for example, has a yeah. provision for, um, against sex discrimination. 
So some 21 states already had legal protections against workplace discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, But Monday's ruling or last Monday's ruling has made it the law of the land. Now, it is sufficient to say that this applies to federal protections. Yeah. Um, This does not hit private protections. And I think I think that's that's something we need to talk about as a society. Um, we need to expand these federal anti-discrimination laws to private. Yeah. Because too much of our daily routine happens in the private sector and happens online. So while I, 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 you know, I'm happy about this, especially with this Supreme court. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think that this is just foundational. It's not the end. But it's a great foundation. So um, basically, uh, the court reasoned that if an employee fires a man because he's attracted to other men, but would not fire a woman who, has a, who was attracted to men, it is treating him differently because of sex. So too, the court explained that if an employer fires a worker for living openly as a woman because she was assigned the male sex at birth, but would not object if she had been assigned the female sex at birth, it is discriminating because of sex. That's an interesting, that is an inverse way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. Okay, let me just. We just, just, yeah, we need like a whole other episode. Yeah, on this, because if. I, I'm not sure that the reasoning is a good one. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I get what they're doing. They're kind of working backwards. But mm-hmm. the working backwards has implications. I mean, the narrative you're creating isn't the most progressive one. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not necessarily the most beneficial one to queer communities. The narrative itself, not the decision. Right. So the Affordable Care Act is also implicated in this because it has a provision against sex discrimination. Um, so a 2017 study found that one in four LGBTQ workers reported experiencing discrimination on the job in the past last year, in the past year alone. So that's a lot of people. 25% is a lot. Now, this doesn't mean, so as I was saying, this doesn't mean the full legal equality is done uh critical gaps remain so we talked about um federal law still does not prohibit sex sex discrimination in public places such as hotels restaurants and movie theaters again because they are private company they're private industry um And the cramped definition of public space in federal law leaves out many businesses that are core to civic life, such as bookstores and shopping centers. Most states have stepped in with with fixes, but only the Equality Act pending in Congress would address these and other gaps nationwide. The Equality Act has an interesting history. Um... Part of that history is being uh, reproduced on TV right now with um, 
Oh, Kate Blanchett, I want to say, is playing the Not character. Watching it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one. I think it's called Mrs. USA or something. Mrs. America or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's the woman who really was successful in blocking that act. And that's okay. an equal pay legislation act. So it's really interesting in that sense. Um, also that uh, links matter and connecting the dots matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Canada, so let's switch to Canada. Yeah, I think what I found really interesting, and of course, this is such a huge victory, but it is, I'm, I'm always careful to, again, we need to celebrate our victories, yeah. right? There are people who work so hard for these legal recognitions, for these equalities, but at the same time, I'm always careful to kind of try to interrogate and see how these laws, um, kind of manifests on the day-to-day on the on a daily basis and how um whether or not our society is also like prepared to catch up and like do the actual work to create safer workplaces uh for queer folks and lgbtq um people and we know that again these laws are the legal ground for advocacy on so many different forms and they're necessarily uh, they're they're not always necessarily translated into better conditions for LGBTQ workers, right? In Ontario specifically, we know that um, a study by TransPulse showed that only thirty seven percent of transgender participants had full time jobs, and that unemployment rate among Indigenous people was twenty percent, which was almost four times Ontario's average unemployment rate of around 5%. And the same study found that that while 71% of trans people had at least some college or university education, about half of them made around $15,000 per year or less. So what this wow. is really showing us is that trans folks are still employed in very precarious um um, situations that they're often uh, unemployed or poorly employed and again this feeds into again homeless le- homelessness lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to to the resources they need um to survive and i think again in canada with all of these equalities that we now have with now gender and sex being protected under our you know being recognized um as potential uh, again under our hate crime policies and under our human rights policies we still have a long way to go to actually ensure equality and equity for specifically trans folks um in our workplaces but i mean even this week we found out that the canadian Mu- museum for human rights told their employees that they were to censor gay content for certain guests mainly folks who who were from religious backgrounds or you know were coming from schools again where uh, on the basis of um religion or personal belief um um they they were not interested in the gay content basically and they did the same thing for diplomats or foreign visitors um to the museum and again we that's you know we have all of these laws and we technically can't discriminate against people and yet we allow for erasure and censorship of all of these histories um that and all of these histories and all of these um equalities that were um fought for and won so um again i i I love what's happening in the u.s specifically with the current 
person um, in the um, White House. But uh, again, I want to make sure that we are focusing a little on Canada and trying to interrogate the ways in which our um, communities and our workplaces um, continue to um, basically discriminate and um, harm queer communities. So... I'm following up on that uh, Canadian Museum of Human Rights. John Yang, the CEO and president of the museum, will be stepping down after his term ends on yeah. August 14th. This comes in the wake of allegations that the museum accepted requests from some schools to exclude content yeah. regarding the rights of the LGBTQ2 plus community. Damn. Yep. They were wow. literally told to stand in front of the content or to direct attention away from it. And this is a damn long apology, so I'll 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 pass it. No. And we're not about apologies, we're about change. Yeah. Okay. Um I didn't they have some anti black issues too? I wouldn't be surprised. But see, here's the thing. Yeah. We pay for these things. Yep. It's our tax dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we pay for them to treat us like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just planting that seed. So. Yeah. Now. I. It, it's so funny because Canadian marketing is so good, Right. Because, mm-hmm. the, you know, if you wa- you think that from the outside that um, that everything was great here for the LGBTQ p- community. Yeah, obviously not. All right. So thanks for joining us for this 30 minute roundup on uh, some of the things we also wanted to talk about, but didn't have the time. Please download our Canada Canada is Racist podcast. That is this week's regular pod. And of course, Misogynist of the Week will come out uh, on Friday. I don't even know what day it is. Anyway, until then, ciao.